Wooshka Studios. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. And they littered, and I said to Lizard, oh my God, what are we going to do now? And she said, we're going, Kath, come on, we're going. And we got to the car, and the next minute, boom! So you heard the Oh, shit, yeah, I could still hear that. And I saw the flames, and I said, she said to me, what were you saying before? I said, shut up, we're going. And I started to shake uncontrollably. The voice you just heard is that of Kath Potter. She was at the Whiskey A Go Go nightclub in Brisbane on the night of March 8, 1973, when it was firebombed. Fifteen people lost their lives. All were dead within minutes from carbon monoxide poisoning. None were burned. As the smoke first billowed into the club, the lights flickered, then failed, throwing the club into blackness. Another patron in the club, Hunter Nickel was convinced he was about to meet his maker. I honestly and totally and 100% to this day believe that night I was going to die. And I, just before I got that window and the fresh air came in, I was on the point of collapse and I remember, thank God Mum and Dad's going to be dirty, I died this way. I remember thinking that and then the fresh air hit me. And you resigned? I'd resigned to the fact that I was dying and I saw a white light. You did? I did see a white light. Sounds stupid, but I can see whether I was on the point of collapse, mind taken over and I was on the point of collapse, I don't know, but I honestly and totally, utterly believe I was on the point of dying. And staff member Donna Phillips remembers that night with terrifying clarity. Uh, We heard a woman scream and we heard glass shattering. So I I do, I'd forgotten previously, but it was another thing that I'd re-remembered was standing near that back door and looking back thinking, well, how can we help these people? But then with the shower, the sound of shattering glass, it was, oh, maybe it's too dangerous. And so, you know, I've, I've come forward to the, to the fence. Mm. And, and up but you heard someone screaming inside. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. Um, once you got over the fence, you went across the Mealy Street and you sat mm. on the footpath? On the footpath with my feet in the gutter. And some you other were facing the club at that point? Yes. You remember seeing it on fire? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. And was it a vicious fire? Um, I don't... I'm pausing. Why am I pausing? Uh, yes. 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 In the club, there were windows along the wall facing St Paul's Terrace, but all were covered in decorative curtains. It didn't matter. An inquest would find that the winding mechanisms on all those windows had previously been removed and the windows riveted shut. A fire-resistant exit door had closed and was unable to be opened from the inside. Most bodies were found in an alcove next to that door. It was a mixed crowd that evening. Of the 50 revellers, Three girls were out on a hen's night, and amongst the drinkers and dancers was a truck driver, the manager of a local suburban public pool, a pub owner from country Queensland, telephonists, a woman who worked in the canteen at the nearby Roma Street railway station, 
two members of the military police and two Queensland police constables. The club itself had a reputation as a last-chance saloon. Rumours lingered that prostitutes worked out of the whisky and that hoods and crims held up the bar there. It had an air of danger about it. It didn't have the fancy atmosphere of checkers, for example, at the top end of town in Elizabeth Street. The decor was chintzy. It strove for class, but was a hood's idea of posh. As the old saying goes, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. This was Fortitude Valley, after all. Yet it still attracted popular musical acts. Kath believes she saw the killers lighting the fire at the front entrance. Hunter had friends perish and only made it out alive by seconds. Donna saw a workmate with his shirt on fire, but she escaped and has been haunted by that moment all her life. Before Port Arthur, the Whiskey-A-Go-Go stood as Australia's worst mass murder. But what does all this have to do with Vince? He claimed he was in Sydney at the time of the fire, but there is evidence that shows he was, in fact, in Brisbane. One criminal told police that witnesses saw Vince skulking outside the club before the fire. Notorious New South Wales detective Roger Rogerson, who flew up from Sydney to help investigate the whisky in 1973, told a journalist decades later that a man named Vince threw a Molotov cocktail into the club that night. So what was true? What was fact? And what was myth? How could a mass murder occur in sleepy old Brisbane? And most importantly, who was behind this infamous crime? Logic tells us it had to be someone who enjoyed the rush of fire, explosives and weapons. Someone who didn't think twice about setting alight a club full of people, knowing many would die. Someone who knew that business was just business, no matter what the collateral damage. That someone would have to have been a psychopath. From Wooshka Studios, I'm Matthew Condon, and this is Ghostgate Road. In this episode, we will take you to the heart of one of Australia's most horrific mass killings and explain how the inferno led to the slaughter of an innocent mother and her children. frantically to escape, smashing through windows. What Barbara McCulkin knew about the Whiskey-A-Go-Go probably cost her life and her daughters. Now look, you stupid bastard, whether you're commissioner or not, you're like bloody well listening to people are going to die for. I can hear people screaming, you know, glasses breaking. For me, it was certainly more death than I'd seen in my career in Fossett. After all, they're, uh, they're mass bloody murders. I mean, we all know that. Until Port Arthur, Australia's worst mass murder.
The man who was tragically right was Brian Bolton, one of the old brigade of crime reporters in this country, a battered band of brothers who see all evil, hear all evil, and know all evil. Bolton is as colourful as some of the characters he writes about. He's got battle scars, a tattoo, and a nickname that's becoming a legend. Up here, they all call him the Eagle. Brian Bolton was a legend in the newspaper game, the sort of hard-drinking, hard-working, chain-smoking reporter you might find in the pages of a potboiler detective novel. They called him the Eagle because of the large tattoo of the apex predator he had on his arm, inked by none other than the dodgy tattooist Billy Phillips, the drug dealer and stolen goods fence we met earlier in this story. As for the Eagle... He wrote about crime, and he had a lot of informants. One was the Brisbane-born criminal psychopath John Andrew Stewart. We've talked about him earlier. The lunatic with the movie star good looks who built his reputation on stabbing a man when he was a teenager. And like Vince, he was extremely violent and had been in and out of mental wards. He was also a graduate of Westbrook. It's where he met the eagle. The two, journalist and criminal, began a long association. Stuart tipped off Bolton about the underworld. And Bolton mythologised Stuart in print as some sort of crazed young modern-day Ned Kelly. Bolton's son, Mark, had been eyewitness to his father's rollercoaster life as a journo filled as it was with dodgy characters and crooks and bent cops, much of it awash with grog. With the eagle, there was never a dull moment. Mark, who still lives in Brisbane, told me about the beginning of the eagle's friendship with Stuart. Yeah, tell me how, how your dad um, first met John Andrew Stewart. Okay. I don't know the full story, I must admit, except for the fact that um, Dad started a, at a newspaper called The Down Start in Toowoomba, mm. and he heard about the Westbrook, um, you know, school thing, whatever you call it, the Westbrook home, and began looking into uh, what was going on at Westbrook. Yeah. And he met John Andrew Stewart through that. So the Westbrook farm home for boys that nursery for future gangsters, rears its ugly head again. The Eagle would move to Brisbane and soon become the top crime reporter for the Sunday Sun newspaper. Its office was in the heart of Fortitude Valley, embedded in the suburbs' grubby bars and greasy spoon restaurants and illegal brothels and casinos. When you stepped out of the Sunday Sun building, you were in the heart of Brisbane's Sin City. Bolton was every inch the shambolic tabloid crime journalist, belting out stories on his typewriter in an atmosphere of booze and hard news. This is Bolton describing his job. It comes from a documentary made years ago about his life. You've got to be prepared to be rung at any minute of the day and leap out of bed and go anywhere to meet possibly the scum of the earth, the shit that knocks around this country, the drug pushers, the peddlers, the murderers, the rapists. You've got to be prepared to meet these people and deal with them on their own ground. 
Alternatively, you've got to be prepared at any stage to rip down to a quiet pub somewhere and deal with a, a bloody rough copper who mightn't like you, but uh, personally, but he might like your style and he'll uh, ring you up and say, look, pal, I've got something for you, meet me at such and such a place at such and such a time and it might be bloody four o'clock in the morning, but you get there because what you're doing is producing something for a few cents that is going to tell the people of this country what the hell's going on around them and they deserve to know this. In early 1973, Brisbane was a city of fires. There was the blaze at Alice's Restaurant in Fortitude Valley, then Checkers Nightclub, and then Torino's. It is worth asking the question, did the perpetrators of Torino's go on to firebomb the whiskey? We know Clockwork Orange gang member Peter Hall confessed to the Torino's arson attack, as you heard in the last episode. Peter told me he and the gang had nothing to do with the whiskey, but they were worried enough about being implicated after Torino's to get out of town. Okay, so that was a successful job, and then, what, 11 days later, the whiskey a go-go goes up. Yeah. So where were you when you heard that news? Yeah, right at the time when we found out. Um, so the day of the fire itself, was it was it daylight or? No, it was night time. So the early hours of the morning? Yeah, we were, we were uh, doing a few uh, breaking enters and um, actually it's come over the news, so that was it. We just got off the streets real quick thinking, what if they connect them both together mm. and they start looking at us? That was... Uh, pretty for a little while there. Then in early 1973, the Eagle got a hot tip from his old mate John Andrew Stewart. Sydney gangsters wanted to muscle in on Brisbane's restaurant and nightclub scene. They were prepared to use deadly force. It was a big story. Bolton trusted Stewart, despite his friend's criminal background and mental instability. And Stewart was connected. He was friends with some of the Clockwork Orange boys. He knew Billy McCulkin and was a frequent visitor to Dorchester Street. Some nights he stayed over. But was this tale of a Sydney gang takeover true? Well, there'd been a small fire at a nightclub called Checkers in February, followed by the blast at Torino's. We now know Torino's was organised by Vince and Billy McCulkin. But Stuart was warning of a nightclub full of people being bombed. There was going to be loss of life. Why did nobody take Stuart and Bolton's wild stories of Sydney gangsters set to storm the Brisbane club scene seriously? This murder, this mass murder, the worst in Australia, and I understand from research the fourth worst in the world, should never have been allowed to happen. Why do you say that? because there were so many warnings given by myself and other people to senior police. Especially the Queensland Police. And in another interview Bolton gave in the 70s, he said... This is just my own personal sort of self-recrimination. I think I possibly, if I'd gone up and hit him in the bloody mouth and said, now look, you stupid bastard, whether you're commissioner or not, you bloody well listen to me and put a bloke down there because people are going to die, pal. 
Remember, Stuart's insane criminal life had been well documented, particularly his psychological issues. He was branded both in the press and in the criminal underworld as a psychopath. He had been in and out of mental wards. And Bolton? For all his talents as a magnet for seedy stories, he was a known alcoholic, and his newspaper, The Sunday Sun, did not shirk at sensationalism. Could the pair be believed? Just hours before the whiskey firebombing, the Eagle had agreed to meet Stuart at his office at the Sunday Sun in Fortitude Valley. Stuart wanted to go to the nightclubs with Bolton and declare that if any of them were attacked, he had nothing to do with any extortion scheme. It reeked of Stuart setting up an elaborate alibi. But Bolton didn't make it to their meeting. Mark remembers that night. And I understand Stuart turned up, but your dad didn't. What happened to, the, to that meeting? Uh, unfortunate timing. Um, there was a journal, journal called Fred Frog Fraser, who was great mates with Dad at the time. Um, or great mates with Dad any time. He, he went to England and they did a typical journal's farewell at the airport to see Frog off, mm. which entailed a lot of drinking. Dad was a little bit uh, past the um, sobriety by the time he got home, and that was sort of four or five o'clock from memory. And he he um, sat down on the couch. I, I can vividly remember the, the 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 atmosphere, everything. There was something just about that particular moment that won't leave me. And he he sat on the right hand side of the couch, and he said to us. Wake me before you go to bed. I've got something important to do. And so, you know, he's full of grog. Mm. And, you know, Dad could be a... Um, how do I put it nicely? He could be an, he could be an asshole when he was drunk. Mm. So we kind of left him there. And um, we didn't wake him up. And that's why he didn't turn up. Stuart went ahead with his plan. He dropped into the whisky for a moment at around 11pm and had a look around. Then he went over to the nearby Flamingo Club, where he kept checking the time as it ticked towards early morning. About 50 people were dancing and drinking inside the Whiskey A Go Go on that Wednesday night, not busy by weekend standards. Many had come to see one of Australia's most popular live acts, the Deltones, who played a late set that evening. The Deltones were a vocal group formed in the late 1950s and fronted by the lanky Ian Peewee Wilson. Into the 1970s, they were still an extremely popular live act they'd had a top five hit with their song, Get a Little Dirt on Your Hands. One of the band members was Brian Perkins. By fate, 
I met Brian just a few years ago in far northern New South Wales. He is now a real estate agent and works with his wife Janice, selling properties in the Byron Bay region. I had gone to inspect a property, and Brian and I got talking. I told him I was writing about the Whiskey A Go Go massacre in Brisbane in 1973, and he simply said to me, I was in a band called the Deltones, and I was in the Whiskey that night. As Brian tells the story. So we, uh, we, went, we did the show, everything was fine, we walked out, and we said, I said, a guy called Seth Martin and Bob Pierce were with us at the time. And we said, uh, we're going there, you guys coming? I said, oh no, we'll stay back and have a couple of drinks. Mm. And uh, Peter and I went downstairs, and we just before we go, Peter was driving, and he said, uh, you think we should just check the boys? And I said, well, maybe uh, I'll just go back up, because we're just outside the club. Mm. I went back up and I said, you're going to come? you feel like coming now? And I said, oh, yeah, right Because I don't think there was a, a lot happening after the show. Anyway, that's, they came with us. And we heard the songs on the way back. Oh, my God, that's incredible. That's how quick it was. It must have been seven minutes after we left. Yeah, was, uh, we were lucky. God was on our side, you so to speak. Outside the whiskey, as the Deltones were leaving, a young woman called Kath Potter was making a desperate phone call in a nearby phone box. She'd been in the whiskey with a friend a minute earlier, waiting to meet her new boyfriend. He didn't show up. So just after 2am, she telephoned Checkers Nightclub, also run by the whiskey owners Ken and Brian Little, and tried to find her boyfriend. Without luck. Then while she was on the phone... She says she was looking towards the entrance to the whiskey and saw something strange through the phone box glass. It's somebody on that phone at Checkers. Said that, said, and I can't tell you who it was because I, to this day I do not know who it was. He said, get out of there now. And I went, oh, why is that? And just as I said that, the black car turned up, three men got out, they took a great big drum and I'm looking through the window of the telephone booth and I'm going, um, and the guy said, are you there? You're there? I said, I'm going, I'm going, bye, thank you, and hung up. And then we stood, the pair of us, I walked out, stood with her, we're cleaning hold of each other and she goes, holy shit, what's happening? I said, I don't know, shut up, shut up, shut up. Kath says she saw a large, long, black, American-style sedan cruise up to the front of the entrance to the whiskey and three men get out. They were dressed in all black, like terrorists. Two were of average height and one was tall and thin. I saw them get out the car, but I didn't really look at the facial features. I just yeah. thought, oh, yeah, there's three men getting out and didn't think anything of it. Yeah. Then when I saw the dragon, the, the drum out of the back seat and they're carefully, pulling it out very carefully... And then the third one, the person that was in the back got out and he sort of started it. The other two were helping. And then when they finally got it out, one of them went around to the back of the car, pulled it up and got this white thing out, this white material or shirt, whatever the hell it was, and started ripping it. And then they stuffed it into the top of the drum. Right, now you, by this point, you're panicking. Oh, God, well, I, I wasn't actually panicking at that point. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? 
And it wasn't until they took, I sort of started to, because they'd gone, and Elizabeth and I hanging on to each other for grim death, and we started to walk because I thought, we're out of here, because it was getting too late now to hang around. And we started to walk, and but we stopped because we weren't sure if they'd coming back or not. And then we saw, we actually got to the corner where you could see what they were doing properly, and they put it into the entrance, right in the entrance, but you could see someone hanging outside. And I saw this guy was, it looked like a flamethrower, but I'm not saying it was a flamethrower. Could have just been a long barbecue match. How the hell would I know? Mm. And they lit it. And I said to Lizard, oh my God, what are we going to do now? And she said, we're going, Kath, come on, we're going. And we got to the car and the next minute, boom. So you heard the Oh shit, yeah, I could still hear that. And I saw the flames and I said, she said to me, what were you saying before? I said, shut up, we're going. And I started to shake uncontrollably. She thought she was going to be sick. We got in the car and I don't even remember driving home. Inside the club, Queensland Police Constable Hunter Nicholl was enjoying a drink with his mates. One of them was military police officer Les Palethorpe. They'd heard the Deltones were playing at the whiskey and wanted to see them live. I walked in, went to sit at a table and Les saw another couple of male and female that he knew because he's from originally from Redcliffe area and they'd grown up together or went to school together. So he said, oh, come on, we'll go and see them. Words to that effect. So walked over and Les introduced us to him. One of the girls, well, both of them, invited us to sit at the table with them. There was a long trestle-type table. It was right near the dance floor. Mm. So we joined them. Les got up to dance with his childhood friend, Faye Will. The band playing after the Deltones was a local outfit called Trinity. Hunter, the designated driver that night, sat on a single bourbon and coke. Meanwhile... It was just another ordinary shift for staffer Donna Phillips. Donna was 22, attractive and a part-time model. That night, she started work at about 7 o'clock. And what was your role, your job? Well, look, it varied. Um, I was a waitress, you know, I took drinks to the tables. I also served food. I remember thinking I was incredibly clever because I had, you know, this number of plates on this arm and plates here, you know, God, I'm doing this thing so well. Um, and then at another stage as well, to behind the bar, behind the um, table service bar down near the stage where I might have mixed cocktails and I was uh, on the till for a while. Prior to 2am, management asked Donna to work the front counter of the club. Then the telephone rang. What's your recollection of that phone yes. call? You got a phone call to the club? A simple phone call, though in the time that I was there, there'd been no other phone calls, and I really don't know what time it was. For me, it would have been somewhere between 12 and two, and the voice said, is Brian Little there? I said, no, he's not. Um, Who can I say is calling? And the person just rang off. And then later on, when Brian Little came back to reception, I mentioned that to him. And then 
Um, and it did seem a little bit unusual to me in those moments at that time that he gathered his partner and uh, his brother and another man and said something like, we're leaving now. Um, what caught me with that was that she didn't necessarily seem to want to leave and she was a bit resistant or hesitant and said, well, why do we have to go? And he didn't say much at all um, and then they left. Not long after that, Donna went to the servery where her friend Decima Carroll gave her a drink of water. It was about 2.08am. Then all hell broke loose. Well, what did you first notice? Can you remember? I didn't hear a firebomb-type sound or whoosh of air or anything like that. But because I was standing facing the door, facing right down... You know, the, in, in line with the staircase. In, in, in line with the the door staircase was further over. Uh-huh. Um, in line with the door, uh, the fire has burst through that doorway, caught the curtains, and the lights were starting to appear as though they were going out. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they were going out, and other people did as well too. But um, if it's correct, I've learnt since that it was the smoke that made it appear as though the lights were flickering. Mm. Um, but, you know, for me, if that was an electrical issue, well then, you know, ouch. So... And the smoke was billowing, was it, and it was black? It was dark. It was dark. Yes, it was dark. Yeah. Hunter Nichols' recollection was different. The first thing that caught his attention was the sound of the fire. Well, we're sitting there, Nick, and I just felt this big whoosh sort of thing, a big blast of heat came in. And turn around, you know, you just feel a terrific heat hit us first with this big whooshing sound. Turn around, just we're just completely enveloped in this real thick, pungent, stinking, thick smoke. Like You see we're burning tyres, diesel. A black. Real black. Thick. I, when I got out, I was covered in this black oily soot in the whole whole of my body. But did it like roll into the club? It didn't just roll in. It was a few seconds, less than a minute. Mm. We were completely enveloped in smoke and everyone just scattered. And I happened to look over towards where I ended up getting out, which is a bar area uh, adjacent to that, which is on the opposite side to St Paul's Terrace. And I saw a bar there, uh, next to the bar, I saw a door with a fire exit sign. And I saw a, a um, fire hose and a couple of people heading towards there. Did you hear anything? I, when I saw people heading towards there, I heard this, well, I just heard this whoosh, roaring sound. Um, it's hard to describe, it's a roaring sound. Then I heard in the smoke, it sounded like water. Well, I thought somebody must have activated the fire hose. I don't know. I'm just making a supposition. What about other people? Did you hear screaming? Oh, yes, there's uh, people just panic, panic-stricken, and luckily I was pretty fit in those days and reaction still pretty quick from being in the Army. And I grabbed my handkerchief with it and soaked them a drink and stuck it over my mouth and went down low and try and get down below... Because I knew smoke rises, try and get down where I couldn't breathe. 
Donna froze with fear. By fate, she was near the club's only emergency exit, near the kitchen. Two men asked her if she was coming, and she followed. She believed she was the third person out of the club after the fire struck. You were frozen? Yep. And then I... I, Do you remember uh, hearing anything, smelling anything? No, no. No? No smell, um, no, no significant sounds, um, and I wasn't overcome by smoke. Uh, I was just in the right place at the right time, essentially. Just, you know, one of those interesting universal things, mm. I feel. So... So um, you, you would, those men would have been pretty much one of the first... Out. Well, I believed that they were the first two and that I was the third. Once Donna got out, something happened to the exit door. It got stuck. Bodies were piling up against it. As for Hunter, he'd lost contact with his friends in the thick smoke, but managed to drag a screaming young woman towards what he thought was the exit. I called out to him because Les and uh, Faye and Bill, we just scattered. And... I called out, you know, to come with me, come in this direction, because that's where I'd seen the fire escape, the other sign. But they disappeared on me. I didn't know, and it was just so thick, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Mm. And um, I started heading in that direction. I, I got on the dance floor heading in that direction, and there's a girl there screaming on the... Uh, I did hear somebody call out fire at some stage, very early in the piece. But we're just completely enveloped and spoken under a minute. And um, this girl was there on the dance floor. She was just screaming out multiple times, I don't want to die, you know. Well, we all die. She was just frozen in panic. And I've grabbed her and dragged her with me. And I was totally disoriented. I could hardly breathe. And I hit the barrier. And then I fell along there because I knew the door was there somewhere. And I couldn't, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face that bad. I fell along the barrier to where I thought the door was. Luckily for me, the door I was aiming for, I missed that. That was a fire escape area where most of, a lot of the bodies were found at the entrance. Hunter found himself in the band changing rooms. He thought he saw people piling out of a small window. Everything had gone. You couldn't, I couldn't see any fire escape sign. I couldn't see nothing. We were completely, totally enveloped in smoke and couldn't, couldn't breathe. Anyway, we got to this and people were climbing through this hopper window and I pushed a few people out and then I pushed this girl I dragged with me out. Eventually, I, you know, I stood there getting a few puffs of fresh air coming in and that sort of revived me because at that stage, I honestly, to this day, completely and utterly believed I was going to die. I was on the point of collapse. Mm when this fresh air hit me. And don't tell me that there's no taste in air. It's a very sweet taste. I could could taste the air and it's sweet. And I got a few lungful of air from what I could, enough to revive me, and I pushed her out and got out. Hunter couldn't know that he would never see Les, Bill or Faye alive again. Donna's workmate, Decima Carroll, a loving mother of three young children, also didn't make it out. Darcy Day, in the band Trinity, went back to fetch a saxophone and died. 
as did 10 others. Emergency vehicles and police were quick on the scene. The fire, largely at the front of the club, was extinguished within half an hour, and the bodies, near the back and untouched by fire, were soon removed. They were lined up and covered in white sheets on the footpath outside the Whiskey Agogo. Firemen, ambulance officers and police at the scene had never seen anything like it and they never would again in their careers. Meanwhile, there was a banging on the door over at journalist Brian Bolton's home in Ascot in Brisbane's inner north. Bolton's son Mark remembers the moment like it was yesterday. No, no, no it, was, it was an eventful situation. And you got to remember, uh, also, we lived in a street called Monaghan Street at Ascot, and it was very, very uh, a quiet you know, street. Yeah. I don't know if the exact time, but about four or five o'clock in the morning, a journalist that was close friends with Dad and, and a colleague called um, Brian Johnston mm. lived at Eagle Junction. And um, Brian got the phone call to come around and get Dad. He's knocked on the door, it's around 3.30, 4 o'clock maybe, and he's banging on the door and he's saying, Eagle, Eagle, whiskey's gone, the whiskey's gone. But, and it's kind of ironic and, and a bit humorous too that the Johnstons had a dog called Whiskey. And Mum was wondering at you know that early hour of the morning why Bunnell was coming around to tell us their dog had gone missing. That, that's how this whole thing started to unfold. Dad knew what Bunnell was talking about, so he was up. And, and I'd say from that moment, he realised, uh, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, so he immediately got dressed and um, Bunner took him to wherever he went next to, to I guess, to the, to the Whiskey Dodo um, nightclub or to the police station, I'm not sure where he went. But that's how we found out. We we're, were woken up by this commotion. Later that morning, over in Dorchester Street, Barbara McCulkin, as was her habit, went a few doors down to the corner store to buy her morning newspaper. The headlines screamed about the massacre at the Whiskey, and Barbara was heard to say, Oh my God, they actually did it. What did she mean? Who were they? This was a tragedy on a scale that impacted dozens of families, hundreds of relatives, thousands of friends and acquaintances, and continues to have a painful ripple effect today. I have met with the children of whiskey victims, and the agony of their loss is still just below the surface. They are quick to tears. The whiskey is an horrific part of their everyday lives. Kath, Donna and Hunter still agonise over it as if it happened yesterday. But so do many, many others. And all of them, bar none, still want answers. They are all a part of a very unique and sadly unimaginable club, the survivors of the Whiskey Go-Go. So let's take a look at what we know about this horrendous event so far. 
The Whiskey Massacre was a moment of absolute madness, a confusing and deadly collision of red herrings, false alibis, muddled memories, blatant lies, fate, police corruption, underworld greed, power and political manipulation. The picture is as unclear today as it was at the dawn of March 8, 1973, when Australia woke to news of its worst mass murder. A Brisbane journalist had been publishing stories claiming Sydney gangs were set to take over the Brisbane nightclub scene. A well-known local gangster, John Andrew Stewart, warned authorities that a club, likely the Whiskey, was going to be torched as part of this extortion racket. Just days before the Whiskey blew, Stewart had flown his best mate and fellow gangster, James Finch, out from the UK to Brisbane. Born in London... Finch was sent to Sydney as a child in the early 1950s with the Bernardo's charity for neglected and abused kids. He crossed paths with Stuart in Long Bay Jail in Sydney in the early 1960s and later in Grafton Jail in northern New South Wales. They became fast friends, so much so that Finch took the rap for the attempted murder of gunman Stuart John Regan. Finch was later deported back to the UK, but when his mate John Andrew beckoned for his help with the whiskey firebombing and paid for his airfare, Finch came running. In the lead-up to the whiskey, a couple of bars and clubs had been damaged by fires and another, Torino's, had been blown up. We now know Vince and Billy McCulkin had been behind that crime for insurance fraud. In the week before the whiskey fire, Sydney gangsters Lenny McPherson and Vince's former employer, Paddles Anderson, were seen in the club. Did Stewart's warnings about a Sydney takeover carry a grain of truth? Just hours before the fire, Stewart, who went to painstaking lengths to establish an alibi for himself that night, appears briefly in the club, then vanishes. Whiskey employee Donna Phillips receives a phone call in the club just minutes before the fire, and owner Brian Little and his girlfriend swiftly depart. Then a black car is seen cruising up to the club's entrance, and three men get out and ignite two drums of petrol. Within two to three minutes, 15 people are dead from asphyxiation. Who masterminded this horrible crime? Was it planned down to the second? Or was it a threat that accidentally got out of control and turned lethal? After a decade going through files and many hundreds of interviews with criminals, police, politicians, the victims' children, firefighters who were there that night, eyewitnesses and members of the public, I still have no definitive answer to the riddle that is the whiskey. But I can make an educated guess. The firebombing of the whiskey was planned in advance as an insurance scam. Given Vince and McCulkin had planned a smaller scale arson attack just 11 days earlier, it's odds on they were also, at some level, a part of the torching of the whiskey. Stewart and Finch were, without doubt, intrinsically involved. 
Some argue that the killing of 15 people was unintended, that the job got out of control. I don't believe this. Whoever set fire to those two fuel drums knew without doubt that there were people upstairs and that there would be loss of life. As for the cover-up that followed involving Sydney gangsters, crooked Queensland police and politicians and a myriad of others, that is a complex story that may never be unpicked. Not even Peter Hall, who took part in the burning of Torino's, has any clear idea of what happened and who was behind the whisky after all these decades, though he, too, has his ideas. Still don't know what was actually behind it, whether Sydney gangsters were mixed up in it, uh, Dempsey was mixed up in it, the police involvement in it. Don't know. I do, do think both police and Sydney gangsters were probably mixed up in it. In the whiskey? Yeah. Definitely don't think they meant to kill all their people. Yes. I think it was an extortion attempt gone wrong. Yeah. As for Barbara, she was terrified. She fled Dorchester Street and farmed out her daughters, Vicky and Leanne, to separate friends. Ellen Gilbert, Barbara's friend who worked with her at the Milky Way snack bar in the city, would later tell police what happened. After the burning of the whiskey a go-go nightclub in the valley, Mrs McCulkin phoned me and asked me could she come to my solace and stay the night with me. She arrived at my home, conveyed there by her husband, Billy McCulkin, and another person. After she arrived at my home, she said she did not want to stay at home as she was very upset. She said something about the police and her house being bugged. I formed the opinion that Mrs McCulkin was very frightened and concerned for the safety of herself and her children, and she deliberately split them up. Just hours after the fire, police conducted a citywide search and rounded up known criminals. One of those was Billy McCulkin. He would later claim that he was questioned for hours before being released without charge. But where was Vince? Decades after the event, a friend of Vince's told me that he was in Sydney when the whiskey went up. He heard the terrible news on the radio, she said. But that's a lie, because a trusted police source of mine only recently confirmed that Vince was nowhere near Sydney on the morning of the fire. He was, in fact, in Brisbane, and like his mate McCulkin, he was caught up in the police sweep for likely suspects and brought into Fortitude Valley Police Station for questioning. He, too, was released without charge. In the meantime, police were firmly focusing on John Andrew Stewart and his mate Finch, as the prime suspects. As for the Eagle, he was in shock. Had he predicted the tragic whiskey story in his newspaper stories? Or had he provided Stuart with an alibi? Mark Bolton remembers the impact on his father. Yeah. Look, I can't put myself in his shoes, but I can empathise with the fact that the moment that Bunga knocked on the door, you know, the, the penny would have dropped. Mm. I should have been there, you know, that, that's... And, and I think it's only natural, I ask myself, 
would this have happened if I were working? I'm sure he was 10 times on top of that with mm. what if I went. And um, I, I, I can't remember whether I ever heard him or he told me himself that he was saying that all he had to do was stand at the front. Um, you know, at the front doors because of the way that the, the, uh, the fire bombing happened. Mm. His mind was, I could have prevented it. Mm. Therefore, I can only assume from that, um, that comment, you know, that he, he felt he could have done something about it and he wore that. In the last couple of years, though, a few things have seriously troubled me about that night at the Whiskey Go-Go. There is Kath Potter's sighting of three men dressed in black outside the club, sticking a wick into a drum full of fuel and lighting it, while police insisted there were only two suspects. Kath gave a statement to police hours after the fire and told them what she saw the black car, and three men. They told her she was seeing things. There were only two men. Five days later, Kath got home from work and had some visitors waiting for her. So I get home from work and here were these two cars out the front of my house. And I didn't, they weren't familiar to me. And I went inside and Dad said, here she is now. And they introduced themselves as two detectives and one policeman. And they said that they, I had gone down to Fortitude Valley Police Station, and although it wasn't called that then, <coughs> and I had made this statement and they showed me the statement that I'd made. I said, yeah, that's right. No, it's not. You're lying. I said, no, I'm not lying. I said, that's exactly what I saw and I've, I've told you what I saw and that's what it is. No, it's not. You've lied and we want you to change your statement. I said, I'm not changing my statement. That's what I saw. Is this is your, your signature? Yes, that's my signature. Why did police insist she change her statement? Alarming, too, is an interview disgraced Sydney detective Roger Rogerson gave to a journalist just months before he was arrested for the murder of drug dealer Jamie Gow in 2014. Rogerson was bragging about his role as an investigator in the whiskey case. He was the big shot from Sydney, hand-picked and flown up to Brisbane to help crack the crime that shocked the nation. Describing how he thought the fire was actually lit, he told the journalist... Finch was the one that did the job. The nightclub had a mezzanine. Vince went to the stairs at the back of the kitchen and threw a Molotov cocktail in. Because it was downstairs, the draft took it and set the explosion rushing up into the club. Within seconds, the whole place was on fire. There were 15 people in there. They were all killed. Let's stop right there. Did he say Vince? That Vince threw a Molotov cocktail in? Who was Vince? Was this yet another case of Rogerson telling a tall tale to the media, as he had done so often and so effectively throughout his career? Given he was 73 when he gave the interview, was this just an understandable seniors moment? 
but why would he pluck the name Vince out of thin air? I needed to find out if he was referring to Vincent O'Dempsey, so I wrote to Rogerson in Sydney's Long Bay Jail, where he is serving life. I asked Rogerson about the quote in the newspaper story where he mentioned Vince. Dear Roger, I wrote, there is no mention of Vince anywhere else in the story, not before or after this quote, and the story does not clarify who Vince is in your quote. Roger, can you tell me who is the Vince you are referring to? The man who threw the Molotov cocktail in. Who is Vince? If you could help me with this, I wrote, you would be assisting in a correction of history that is way overdue, especially for the families of the whiskey victims. Several weeks later, Rogerson replied, To start with, none of that's my verbiage. And to be quite truthful, it doesn't make sense and does not fit at all as to how the fire started. I've never heard of anyone called Vince having anything to do with either Stuart or Finch. I believe it was really a simple case. I think it gets down to this. When one psychopath gets with another psychopath, you end up with mayhem. I think you're barking up the wrong tree. Roger then said he would enter no further correspondence on this subject. Stuart and Finch were arrested and charged with the firebombing and murders. Did Vince have a hand in the whiskey? Years later, a professional criminal and police informant, Robert John Griffiths, who had a reputation for being an habitual liar, signed a statutory declaration swearing that Vince was seen, quote, skulking outside the whiskey on the night of the fire. There is no doubt the whiskey inspired Vince to embark on a murderous rampage the likes of which has never been seen in Australian criminal history. But could he count those 15 whisky victims as notches on his belt? Maybe we can finally answer that question. Over in Dorchester Street, Barbara McCulkin and her two girls, Vicky and Leanne, had just 10 months left to live. Ghostgate Road is produced by Wooshka Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Visit ghostgateroad.com for additional material and a full list of credits and search for the official Ghostgate Road discussion group on Facebook.